Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, and as you know, I'm president of Morton Group LLC, a national consulting firm that's based in Chicago. And we are proud to be celebrating actually our 21st year of transformation through assessment, education, and action. Enough with all of that. I can't wait for you to hear the next two podcasts that we have in store for you. For the first time ever, we are splitting our conversation into a two-part episode. I'm so excited because Gathering Ground, we are traveling all over the country. I just decided, I just made that up right now. Uh, (laughs) Where are we going next? You know, who knows? (laughs) Let's talk about that. Uh, But today, we are in Detroit, beautiful Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to the We're on location and we're going to be speaking with uh, just always the extraordinary, beautiful, smart Angelique Power Aww. and Tracy Hall. And this is our reunion show. Yeah, yeah. We missed last year. That's so we've neat. had one in 19. And then we did it in 20. Mm-hmm. We missed 21. Okay. It was also a year of a lot of transition uh, for in many ways. Um, Tracy, you started a new position at the American Library Association. But yes. it has been over two and a half years. Yes. That's incredible. And of course, we're in Detroit so mm-hmm. that we can visit with Angelique yeah. and her new gig yeah. at the Skillman Foundation. And it hasn't really months, been, it's months. been nine months, nine, 10 months, nine months, yeah. but less than a year, yes. less than a year. So you have moved your family. Um, we're going to talk about all those things and then talk about some you know topics that are, that are on our minds. So let's get started by talking about, um, Tracy, your transition from the Joyce Foundation to ALA. Uh, we were also excited for you in Chicago, and it's really hard to believe it's been two years. Yes. Oh, sometimes <laughs> it feels like just yesterday, and sometimes it feels like two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe longer. <laughs> or maybe longer sometimes. Definitely. I think the pandemic, uh, for many of us, uh, starting in, especially like me, I think I started my position, my first official day was February 25th, 2020, hmm. and literally... Uh, two weeks later, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. And of course, all of the ideas and the thoughts and all the things that brought you to the position and the things that you think uh, you're going to uh, focus on just are just are disrupted by a reality, and especially in the nonprofit sector, of really trying to navigate through an unprecedented period. And one that we found the world was not prepared for. Not at all. So things shifted. Right. Okay. So what? let's just sort of check into what was happening with you in February as we were getting ready to go into COVID. Yeah. Well, February 24th is my birthday. So when you said ah. you started the day after my birthday, I was like, oh, what's mm. he doing? You know, I'll say um, I am married to an extremely intelligent human being. And he's here actually filming us. Um, so around February, Sean had already been talking to me about the pandemic. He had been watching what was happening in China. Uh, Mm -hmm. my daughter Sadie has had a really good friend at school whose grandparents had been quarantining for a month in China. And I just remember thinking, oh, that would never happen here. Like that would never happen. But Sean was already saying like, you know, we should probably buy supplies because it's coming here. And I remember him telling us and, um, and you know, everyone was sort of like, you know, thought that it was just this fantastical thing. 
but we had already started to like prepare our home. Mm-hmm. And I had already started to talk to my folks at the Field Foundation about this. And so we actually I think it was like March 6th. We had just moved into the impact house. Mm-hmm. It had right. just opened up. Um, we got all of our stuff in and there were some staff who hadn't even moved their things. And I said, don't, don't come in yet. You know, let's start setting up your offices at home. And so we switched gears pretty quickly. And luckily we had actually moved out of a more expensive space into a shared workspace. Which is what the impact house is. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we had set ourselves up so that we would be working remotely for two weeks is what we all thought it would be <laughs> just two um, weeks but we set ourselves up for two weeks in the move ah okay and then that turned into wow. you know continuing on today but we were somehow a little bit prepared a little bit prepared but it's still been, unprepared yeah mm-hmm. extraordinary times so, so let's go back for a moment and get a little bit more of context around the work of the ala mm-hmm. um, because as as those of you who live in chicago and maybe Outside of Chicago, know as well. Chicago is really association town. Yes, I've worked is. at two associations: American um, Dental Association and the American Hospital Association. Uh, membership organizations, national membership organizations that are headquartered in Chicago. Tell us what happens at the ALA. Well, the American Library Association was founded in 1876, and its core mission, of course, is to provide information access and education to all. And, and to do that through libraries, which uh, ounce for ounce, pound for pound, I think are the, the largest driver of um, lifelong learning and supporting education in, in general. So ALA is headquartered uh, in Chicago. We have our public policy and advocacy office in uh, Washington, D.C. We have a publishing arm in uh, Connecticut, Middletown, Connecticut, and uh, we also have uh, an arm that focuses on library trustees and boards uh, in Philadelphia, which is where we were founded uh, in 1876. And we are the oldest and largest library association in the world. We have over 51,000 uh, members, and we serve over 330,000 people who work in libraries or in some aspect of library-based information services, and then provide support across the information ecosystem. And we really work around 12 core values. One of them, uh, of course, is is uh, two of them are really being challenged right now, intellectual freedom uh, and equity, diversity, and inclusion, especially now. And I know we'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. about um, this unprecedented era of, of censorship. But I actually came to Chicago to work for the American Library Association I directed the Office for Diversity, and I came to uh, Chicago to work at ALA in 2003. So ALA is actually why I even live in Chicago. And yeah, I became a librarian. I've worked in libraries since the late 90s, and I became uh, went to library school, University of Washington uh, Information School. So I'm going to give a shout out to uh, my alma mater. But uh, I had worked in libraries all across the, the country, and I've been a librarian since... Um, 2000. I've had my library degree since 2000 and since 2000. So that's what brought me here. And so it it was really interesting. Well, I'm in Detroit right now. So Mm -hmm. that's what brought me to the Midwest. Mm -hmm. But what I will say um, quickly about uh, ALA is that it is uh, a place where I think Thinking about information and and as infrastructure for the entire nation, that's where that was born in me. And I think the other thing that I I think about when I think about uh, 
making the decision to come back to ALA is that it really wasn't an intention of mine. But I know that even as I've been an arts administrator, worked in nonprofit uh, organizations and also in foundations, there's never been a time when uh, at some point on the side of my desk, I'm thinking about how everything we might be thinking about relates to libraries. So I am a librarian, I think through and through for sure. And you spent some time in Brooklyn, as I recall. In Queens, yeah. Queens. Yep, Queens. yep. Okay. I was vice, okay. uh, vice, vice president for... Um, strategy and organizational development at Queens Library. That's the last library um, that I actually worked in. All right. This is deep, deep inside. <laughs> so what excites you the most about the mission of the work? Ah. Well, I mean, we're in uh, this pandemic moment, and I think we have seen uh, the ways in which the three most important uh, indicators um, uh, in terms of um, lifetime outcomes, which is uh, access to education, access to employment, and access to public health, are all being tested you know, mm-hmm. at this time. And today, in the 21st century, uh, the sort of access points to, to any of those pathways uh, are mediated. I mean, you... In order to uh, schedule an appointment, if you needed to um, access your physician during this period of time, or just even access vaccinations, you have to spend some time online. According to Pew, um, which really looks at uh, a lot of um, areas, I think, of our ecology and focuses a lot on libraries, although not exclusively, uh, it is estimated that about 20% of people are not online at all. Mm -hmm. And what we do know also, too, is in the U.S. at this um, particular point in time, we have between 18 to 23% of adults whose literacy levels are so low that they are not able to navigate uh, the internet without some type of support or co-navigation. So I think that when we are compounding, so now you're getting to your question, what excites me the most about my work? What excites me the most about my work is that everything that I've ever wanted to do in life has uh, always uh, involved supporting and advocating for people who are not only not at the table, but they don't even get access to come inside. Uh, And and that's based on my own lived experience. And I think uh, why I think maybe I might be alive at this particular time is understanding that we have normalized uh, the fact that so many people are left out of the loop. And as a librarian, what we do is to ensure that people are not left outside of the information loop. And and that's the most exciting thing because I think the pandemic has revealed to us that information is a core part of, of our social infrastructure, as is art, as are all of these other sort of access points that we're going to talk about. But I think it is an area where we have we have made poverty the, the fault of the people who are poor. We have made not having access to information um, the fault of the people who are not in the know. We have made underemployment or unemployment the fault of the people who, who fell to uh, to to gain access to sustainable jobs. We have not looked at the systems or even the fact that we have normalized systems that leave so many people out. And in our work at ALA, that's what libraries do. We're trying to create um, equity in terms of information access. So there you have it. That's that's why that's why I feel like I'm I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that is what motivates me to do this job at this time. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're going to come back to a number of those topics, but I want to turn to Angelique for a few moments and hear about the transition from the shy 
<laughs> to the D. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about that and, yes. and, and you know, give us a little context. Because we miss you. Yes. I know. We miss you in Chicago. I miss you guys too, but you're moving here. We're, oh, that's right. But well, we have a room anyway. Yeah, you do. Rooms. Yes. We, <laughs> we have, know that now. We, we have established that. Um, let me just say that it's like so good to be back talking with you both. And a hallmark of being on this show is that I forget that I have to talk too. <laughs> and I just fall deep in the conversation and I just love listening to both of you. Um, and we stayed up late in the night yes, last night talking at my kitchen table. So yeah, the perfect place. Um, so the transition, you know, I wasn't looking to leave Chicago. You know, Chicago, I bleed Chicago and you all know that. Um, grew up on the South Side and felt like when I was at field, I was really doing my life's work um, and deeply connected. And when the pandemic happened, um, there was a moment where I felt, not even a moment, there were many moments where I felt a, a form of despair mm -hmm. and hopelessness, which is not me. Like anyone mm -hmm. who knows me, I'm like a pretty upbeat, optimistic, <laughs> optimistic <laughs> human um, um, maybe naively so. And so I felt like, how does this play out? How does this change? Um, how do I help? What do I do? And then I started watching all of these young people, black and brown, young people taking to the streets. I wasn't taking to the streets. I was watching this from inside of my home. I was watching this from behind a computer. And I realized, having turned 50, um, that that era for me of revolution in the streets, I mean, I can't say it's totally behind me, but that where, where the revolution takes place for me is in a different space. And so um, I suddenly felt hopeful, actually, listening to what the young people were saying. They're not about incrementalism. They're not about like, well, let's reform at the margin. Like they were really right. calling mm -hmm. for wholesale change and their minds are so mm -hmm. intersectional mm -hmm. so that it is about racial justice and criminal justice and climate action. And disability justice disability and reproductive justice. justice. And LGBTQIA yes. plus mm -hmm. justice. And um, that's just how they operate. And so... At the same time, and I'm being really honest because that's what ends up happening when I you know, talk with you all, <laughs> at the same time, there were all these opportunities that had always been coming, but they started coming fast and furious. And I know that you all know this. I mean, you work in search, Mary mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Tracy, you are sought after. Um, but I got the feeling like everyone in 2020 was looking for a black woman who does mm -hmm. racial justice work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I started Agreed. to have conversations with places that I never dreamed of. Um, and I felt like, wow, this is more money than I could ever have dreamt of making. And this is prestige of a different level. And this is a Wikipedia page and all of these things. And I realized that the cost of those things, the grind that was involved in those things, the way that I would have attacked it pre-pandemic, <laughs> um, that had shifted for me. And... It wasn't grinding for, you know, other people. It wasn't grinding for, like, approval. It wasn't grinding for acceptance or for... It was... The only thing I was interested in doing was grinding for meaning. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. And so I found myself saying, no, thank you. 
two opportunities. And I was telling you yesterday, Tracy, that then, of course, the flip side was like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> what is my problem? What's wrong with me? Um, but the idea of what life is about, of what success means, mm -hmm. of what my time on the planet is meant to do, shifted. And there are things that are terrible about the pandemic. And there were things that were gifts from the pandemic. Being rooted in place was a gift. Cooking dinner every night is a gift. Watching my child grow up and be able to like lay in bed with her as she fell asleep at night, I wouldn't, at the end of my life, I'll look back on that and say like, those were the best days. So when this opportunity came up to return to Michigan and just like ALA was a homecoming for you, um, my parents had like a small cottage in Western Michigan when we were growing up because mm -hmm. my father was a police officer. My mother was a teacher. Summer's off. Every weekend we came to Michigan. We had blueberry bushes. We grew our own food. And so this, I went to University of Michigan, returning to Michigan and having my family be central in everything that I do, being able to work at the Skillman Foundation and back the fight for equity where young people are making choices for themselves. They are the designers of their own destiny. Um, all of that felt like success for me in a way that was totally different. And I know a lot of people in Chicago were like, wait, where are you going? You know, And a lot of those people haven't actually seen Detroit. In many years, if at all. Yes, if, if at, at all. all. And right. once they stand on Detroit ground, that changes. And so I feel like... Just like you said, I am in the exact right place that I'm meant to be that somehow is brand new and somehow is, you know, a homecoming at the same time. Yeah. It is, um, there's a familiarity there. Yes. Yes. Right. A nostalgia. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I'm one of those people that, I mean, I've been to Detroit many times, not in probably over 10 years. Major difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Major difference. Um, I have some friends who I'll, I'll see uh later this weekend, who have been here for probably closer to 15 years from Chicago yeah. and really left Chicago because they were not finding what they needed in Chicago, which I think people just assume would never be the case mm -hmm. and that you would come to Detroit, certainly the Detroit of 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to talk more about Detroit. However, before we dive into some of our other questions, I want to give folks just a context and some understanding of what Skillman Foundation yes. is involved with. Um, so the Skillman Foundation is 62-year-old private independent foundation and has always focused on Detroit and always focused on its youngest visionaries, which are its children and youth. There have been different initiatives over the ages, and, and actually on Tuesday we're doing a history walk with our trustees and staff where we are practicing the Ghanaian art of Sankofa, where you look back to move forward, mm -hmm. um, to study these different uh, Detroit's, because to your point, there have been different Detroit's that have mm -hmm. emerged, mm -hmm. and also to look at Skillman's role throughout history so that we can determine who we're becoming. Um, a lot of the focus, you know, Tracy, you talked about access to education as mm -hmm. this passport, really. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the focus of Skillman has been on the education systems, because it's multiple here, mm -hmm. um, and what it looks like, what young people need, and... Um, since I've come, we're really asking in this moment of COVID, you know, schools have been decimated, teachers are exhausted, principals are, you know, um, at their breaking point. School boards have become this place where national uh, 
politicos are coming in to try to fight the same things that they're doing to libraries about censorship, mm-hmm. um, talking about race is verboten. Um, and so we're really trying to figure out how do we actually evolve and innovate education in this moment so that it catches up with, you know, what we desperately need in terms of like our own trauma and creating these spaces of wellness. And we're actually sitting in this like former school, which is pretty incredible that we're talking about this now. Um, But also like, how do we lap ourselves with education so that we catch up on cultural pedagogy Mm. um, that is actually relevant, that we create spaces where we can like dream, um, where we are safe, where we can recover, um, where we aren't just sort of being programmed to work in a factory, which is what a lot of schooling has been. And so, um, so that's a lot of what Skillman does. And then we also, what makes us special is not our proximity to capital, although we do give about $20 million away every year in Detroit. What makes us special is our proximity to Detroit young people. And so um, I have a President's Youth Council. They are age 12 to 23. And they've become the grant makers, you know. Since I started, I was like, you make the grants. Here's $100,000. How should we give this away? They, um, nobody had to apply. They chose organizations where youth were leading. Uh, They used ranked choice voting to make their decisions. And explain what that is. Uh, That's basically you take a vote on, everyone sort of says, here's my favorite. And then the first and the second and the third move up, and then you decide between them. It is different than in elections where it's like a winner-take-all right. situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, you sort of go with like the collective view of what is right. Um, and we can talk more about young people and the collective view um, later. But so they, and then they also called everybody personally to tell them that they had received the funds. They did Zoom calls. And for reporting, they said, you know, whatever the nonprofit wants, it could be a social media post, it could be a video. And we did this so that we could like learn from them. Um, we also took them to Mackinac. There's a Mackinac policy conference that happens. We took them to Mackinac three weeks ago. They were the youngest presenters in the history of the Mackinac policy conference. They blew the doors off the place. Of course they mm. did. Of course so they did. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. Oh my goodness! That sounds, sounds amazing. It? <laughs> yes, it sounds really. It's exciting. It's new. It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. It is such a, a different way of uh, really pushing out much needed dollars than. I, I think we ever see in philanthropy. I mean, certainly I know of um, young people that have been on councils, right? But this sounds like a much more in-depth, thorough, holistic Mm -hmm. approach to grant making. Mm -hmm. And to change ourselves. Yes. Absolutely. You know, which I think that there's this like misconception of what you gain from grant making. Like you gain change. If you come up with the theory and then you pay people to carry it out and then you force them to, you know, then social change will happen. But actually it's like all you can really do with grant making is try to earn trust, try to be close to people who are visionaries and try to learn and learn collectively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there, hopefully make better choices and better decisions in the future. But and it is about trust. I mean, we we often say that uh, certainly our work around racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion moves at the speed of trust. But it's for all of our work, really, yeah. right? This idea of 
getting to know each other, trusting each other, understanding our values, what's important to us, and really putting that into uh, into place. And so it, it takes a moment. And I think sometimes people want to rush that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think you can rush it. it it's it's going to happen as it as it is supposed to. Because the speed of trust moves at the speed of relationships. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually takes a while. And relationships are key. I mean, we often say if you cannot have a conversation with somebody, you, you're not going to have a relationship with them. Yes. Right? So we have to have, we have to keep talking to each other. This is a very special uh, episode of Gathering Ground uh, with Angelique Power and Tracy Hall. We're back in a moment. filming on location in Detroit, and I want to give a special shout out to Motown Motivated Studios. That's where we had the enormous pleasure of recording this podcast. Just a lovely, lovely setup. Uh, We felt very welcomed and uh, absolutely taken care of at Motown Motivated Studios, so check it out. little bit about how, um, because you both have really important uh, dynamics in place in in your organizations, how are you managing in a different way now than you did before COVID? And if so, tell me how. I'm smiling at Tracy right now (laughs) because you just blew my mind when we were driving here with what you were saying about Miles Davis. Can you, can mm-hmm. you share yeah. that? Well, I was, uh, ch- you know, obviously I um, love music and love to read and all those kinds of things. And I know that we've talked about that in the past mm-hmm. and musical references mm-hmm. always show up for me. Uh, and so I spend a lot of, of time whenever I can um, going back to old interviews with uh, people who I um, musicians who I, who I'm really fascinated with or love, you know, just trying to, to kind of get into their headspace and, and, and understand, you know, what's going on in their mind and what allows them to kind of create the music that, uh, they do. And I also do that as well with a lot of playwrights, because I do think there's a lot of, of, of management, um, uh, skills that uh, people who lead bands and that playwrights and directors and all those people, you know, they have to really understand relationship building. And sometimes you have to be able to do it very quickly, right? If you're going to make a recording or you're, um, or you, or you're directing a play, you have to build that relationship to build that trust, to create, um, those outcomes, you know, that are supposed to move crowds literally. Right. So I'm always going to going, going to them for advice. And I have to say that when I was at Joyce and both, um, I was actually, Actually, I followed um, uh, uh, Angelique at Joy's Foundation and directing the culture program. But uh, over my desk, I had on this I stand, um, which is uh, August Wilson's lecture when he received um, a major award. I forget which one. And uh, in it, he's really talking about 
why he's writing in the way that he's writing. Why is, why is he making these plays, you know, especially that are literally going to be hallmarks of American theater, ultimately. He didn't know that at the time. But uh, in, in summary, that's what they have become. So I went uh, to an interview um, with Miles Davis, and he's talking about recording. And he's talking about how in an interview someone is asking him, um, about the fact that he's known for playing, of course, <laughs> you know, virtuosically, but his a spare style, right? And, and, and explain what you mean by that. Just in terms of um, he is choosing, uh, he's choosing each note very carefully. So it's not a lot of notes, mm-hmm. but they make that impact, right? Because of the intention? Because of the intentionality. And of mm-hmm. course, because of his understanding of music mm-hmm. and his understanding of American classical music and um, the other American classical music, which is jazz, right? So he understands the connection between them. Uh, and he thinks like a composer, right? So, because he is a composer. So, uh, and, but what he's talking about is that, is that, you know, and he by the end of his life, you know, he's playing two or three notes. You can go to a Miles Davis concert and he's going to give you that boom, and that's it, right? <laughs> and then he'll come back in. But he's mostly listening, you know, and of course it's iconic Miles by this time. This is Miles who is now aware of legacy Miles that mm. I'm talking about, right? So he's like standing to the side and he's watching all of these musicians who he is, who he sees all this amazing stuff in. But in this interview, they, they speak to the fact that he plays in this very spare style. And he says, you know, I, I'm not thinking that I'm just playing a few notes. He says, in fact, what I'm imagining is what note would I want to come in on if I were another musician in the band? And so what I'm trying to do as a band leader is basically to create a palette that someone can come into and make their best music. And something about that was like, that is the role of a leader. That is the role of, of a manager because you know, obviously the management, you know, what Peter Drucker's definition mm-hmm. is the art of bringing everyone along together, mm-hmm. right? So when I think about uh, the pandemic moment and stepping in to um, the American Library Association and understanding what its role was going to have to be in terms of stewarding what was going to be a paradigm shift away from libraries are mostly about place, physical place and visitation, you know, as a librarian, especially as a manager, you're looking at door count, you're looking at circulation. Those are the kinds of metrics that let you know that you're either doing your job or not doing your job. You're either making an impact or not making an impact. But what we saw libraries have to do is to move away from just the physical aspect of uh, library and information services and begin to think in terms of how do we shift all those people who uh, who, who need to be able to access information to new platforms and give them new skills and support them in ways re- remotely. And I thought about with my own staff, how do we, because now with the American Library Association, if you work there, your job is to codify those practices and to scale them and to disseminate them and to support the practitioners who have to do that for the people. And what that meant for me was to also recognize uh, the value of life mm. and the ways in which mm. nonprofit organizations, it's, the ways in which we kind of fall into this notion that labor and the laborers are fungible mm. when they are not fungible. 
when each and every one of the people who work at the American Library Association bring their commitment, bring their genius, bring uh, their unique point of views, their lived experiences, and that thing that gets them up in the morning to do this work. And so what I had to begin to recognize is that if I was going to now do my job of supporting these people who now support the practitioners who support the people, what what am I going to do? And that was to begin each day with gratitude and to be really radical about thanking and seeing them every single time we got together and to create and creating a culture where uh, we understand that we are each other's best assets and that we acknowledge each other for the work that we do. So um, one of my staff, we start talking about how can we do this? So in every meeting that we have, we start with the mission moment. Mm -hmm. We start with the spark. What was the need? Who assessed it? Which team work with our members to create something? And what's the impact? And we and we do that. We start every single meeting with with uh, gratitude and with a mission moment. And that uh, that changed my management style because for me it means that. So I affirm my staff all the time. And I have to say one thing. You know, if you know, as as my as my mom would say, if I never say another thing. I just want to say that I have learned so much about people. People are in general waiting for an opportunity to do the thing that matters. Mm-hmm. To do, people are not, mm-hmm. and in our younger, um, our, our younger staff, one of the things that I see is that I think they have a better understanding of the value of time in their lives. And why is that? Because some of the, uh, some of the spectacles that have been created that have shown like the, the greatest inequities in recent times, they grew up in that, in that, in that era and they're watching that. And so I think they come in like, Hey, if I'm going to be in this organization, this organization has to produce. If this is the organization's mission, I need to see it every day and I need to fill it in my life. Uh, and I think that that has like really held us in integrity. But what I, I do want to say is that I lead now, from more of a space of vulnerability, of uh, of of gratitude, uh, of not being shy. You know how sometimes people say, "I don't." You know, when you're getting ready to leave, this would happen to me a lot. And I wonder, you know, if it's been the same for you, Mary and Angelique. But especially when I was much younger, I would do my time in an organization, and a lot of times my story is not leaving the organization, but being heavily recruited because there was a need that people are making the case that you can really fill this need and do it in the time that will actually matter to the public. Because I am the least ambitious person in the entire world, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely least ambitious. But I'm five thousand percent if it's about some good positive change. Mm-hmm. If it feels like it's going to impact somebody for real, for real, and it's going to make a difference for real, for real, that's how I'm living my life. Like. I'm, I'm going to the biggest need, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, where's the biggest need? And it's not because I think I have something to give, but I have everything to learn and I'm willing to humble myself to figure out how to help others, right? So what I what I, um, what I began to understand is that uh, in when I get ready to leave is that some of the thing, you know, you never know, am I doing a good job? You know, I hope I'm doing an okay job. Mm-hmm. You know, I know this happened. I know people said this was pretty good, but you know, and then people say, Oh, I, we're just devastated that you're leaving because you, that's all this stuff. It's like a relationship. Like I'm about to quit you. 
And now you telling me I'm the, uh, you know, you, you know, baby, baby, You're I love one. you. You're the one. You're the one. <laughs> Don't do that. You know, so what I'm trying to tell me that before. <laughs> so what I'm trying to do is I want to be able, and this is because I want to be able to come up out of that. So in real time, you just you're doing something that is shifting things in a material way, in a tangible way. Thank you. Thank you. I see you. Go ahead, do it. And I'll do it. I laugh, you know, when we just hit a, a big target for some stuff we want to do for our members. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I said to the person who keeps the numbers, I said, when you hit this number, let me know on the day. Don't wait until the report comes out on Thursday. Let me know that day. She said, okay. She sent me the numbers. I sent to the entire staff, go ahead with your bad self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? That's right. Because right. I see, I don't care if that's cool. You're not supposed oh. to, or I'm the executive director, so I'm supposed to be like, oh, that was wonderful, or just write that in the report. <laughs> no. In this pandemic, yeah, when people go ahead with your bad self. Yes. And what yes. I think is that it makes the organization um, recognize that we can celebrate our work and push even beyond those targets. And also, I just want to say, as I switch off of this, I want to say to Angelique about working with uh, young people, one of the biggest things that I think that we can do to move the needle across this country is to build a culture of philanthropy. And, and I think that we have to build a culture of philanthropy that is outside of, of, of just the foundations, because I think that we have to move uh, this idea that foundations hold the power and we're waiting for these big grants or these big gestures or be acknowledged by foundations and instead build a culture of philanthropy so that the people are able to say, you know, this is what we need to invest in. This is the work that we need and we want to affirm that. So I, I just want to congratulate you and affirm that I think that what you're doing for young people is going to be generative in the years to come. Thank you. You know, when I arrived in Detroit, and I've been, you know, working in and out of Detroit since the 90s. And so I know enough to know that Detroiters do not suffer fools. They Mm -hmm. look with side eye at anyone who is coming (laughs) in. And they've had a very extractive relationship with outsiders who come, you know, with a cape instead of a jersey. So I was very clear when I was coming here that, you know, I I am not from Detroit. And I will say that. I mean, people know anyway. But, like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to front. I'm not trying to pretend and, and um, think that someone from Chicago is going to come to Detroit with answers. So I had said to um, the trustees before I said yes to this that I wanted to spend a year actually talking to Detroiters and listening and so what's happened is this incredible thing where the full staff, it is not me just sitting there listening. Everyone on the staff has like embraced this listening tour. And so we do these almost weekly. And I do my one-on-ones, but then we collectively sit down with these groups. And a lot of time it's young people, it's educators, it's residents, it's activists, it's artists. And we ask a series of questions like what what do we have to understand about Detroit in this moment? What do we have to understand about um, philanthropy in this moment? What do we have to understand about Skillman? Where have we helped that you want us to keep going? Where have we harmed that mm-hmm. you want us to pause? Um, and then we also end every listening session by saying, okay, we know you know you need money and that you need this and you need that and we understand that. 
But like you are a human being in this moment, two years into a pandemic, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And it's a really hard question to answer. And the conversation takes like a completely different turn. And so I see, and this does get back to like my management style. Mm-hmm. I see that there's an expectation in different parts of philanthropy, but definitely in this city, there's an expectation that you come in to run a foundation, you're going to be behind a podium, you're going to be pushing like for something, you're going to be the voice of. I've had a lot of people say to me from different sectors, like, oh, the new sheriff is here. Oh, are you ready to be the voice of? Oh, are you ready to, you know? Um, and so I know, and you all know this, that I'm actually... Um, an ensemble member. <laughs> and I believe that the the power of the ensemble actually is where we not only make progress, but it's it's actually rooted in the ground then because it's grown from a collective idea um, that that heavy handedness in philanthropy is something that is actually works against mm-hmm. what progress looks like. I also find that workplaces, you know, are a trip. I call leading an organization the Truman Show, you know, Mm. where there is that psychology. Even if I try, and I do try because I'm, you know, down to earth, I'm self deprecating, I love humor, I love poetry, I speak from my heart. But when a leader of an organization enters a room, the play begins. And so I'm just aware of that. Um, I'm aware that many workplaces, people try to show up and be seen, but it's not the right fit for them. That isn't their space. That's not where they're going to do their life's work. Um, That work mimics authority and hierarchy. And so naturally you fall in this pattern of like wanting to prove and get an A and be loved. And that's not actually, you know, those are byproducts of some like potentially healthy or unhealthy workplaces, but that's not, you know, we're here for a bigger mission and a bigger calling. And if people can click into what they're supposed to be doing in this moment and what the mission of an organization is and what their role is um, or what their role might be, and they can learn skills along the way and they can give like channel the universe along the way, then, then it is a fit and it Mm -hmm. is right. But oftentimes that's not what happens in workspaces And so I think for me, um, I see whether I'm entering Detroit or whether I'm entering into a workplace, I find that my job is one that changes over time and with different roles that I play as a leader. So my job in Detroit right now isn't to come in and like clear the ground and like plant a bunch of seeds and like see what kind of crop can grow. My job is to like sit and study the landscape. And find out what's been planted and what's natural to the environment and what has been injected and what is an invasive species and um, to do that. In the workplace, my job is to try to understand where people fit in the organization. You know, one uh, something I'm doing over the summer is working with a consultant to help think through what is our strategy and what is our structure. Mm. Because often, like, people... Because you're solving a problem and you're moving a person here or, you know, um, you feel like, oh, well, this is the way other organizations do it. So we should do it that way. Um, This is sort of a tabula rasa moment. We want to spend more time. This listening tour isn't a gimmick. 
Like we're, we're taking everything we're hearing from people and we're redesigning how we're going to do grant making from what community tells us is important. When we finish that, which we're getting close, we're going back to community to say, is this what you said? Is this wrong? What's missing? What needs to be added? Are there metrics? If so, what are they? Who makes decisions? Who should be deciding these things? And so that's going to take like another year mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. Are we structured to uh, cut checks or are we structured to build relationships? Mm -hmm. um, so management right now, this first year, nine months in, it looks like a landscape, you know, analysis of me just sort of sitting in a field <laughs> and, and actually making sense of, of what's around me. It also is me sort of sketching and trying to figure out what is needed to build something. Next year, when we have this conversation, I will probably be in a different position as a manager. Mm -hmm. I will be saying, hey, this is an invasive species that we planted. You know, mm -hmm. we've got to stop with this. And this is actually community rooted that we have to nourish. And now I'm switching my staff around how we need to function. And there are folks that are lovely and they're not doing their life work mm -hmm. and they're unhappy. And there are folks that are like waiting to bloom and I need to help them grow. And so that will change over time and my management style has to follow. Oh, that was a master class right there. Mm. Mm -hmm. You said three things and, um, and I just want to hold them. Uh, one is I think one of the quandaries of any system is making sure that you have the structures, the right structures to reach the strategies. Yes. Many, many people want to create strategic plans. And, you know, I've done a lot of uh, consulting on um, and helping to build um, strategic plans for smaller organizations and at the library level. And what I see a lot of times is that people will want to announce or articulate a new strategy, a meaningful one, right, to get to some very important goals, but don't want to change any aspect of the structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Definitely mm -hmm. just want to put new wine in old skins. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and then I think, you know, this notion of knowing when and where you can do your life's work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sometimes some of the biggest heartbreak that I think we can feel as administrators or workers in, or, is when you are bursting with mission and where you are seems to align, but it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. That's a hurting thing. It is. It doesn't feel good for anyone. Mm -mm. No, it doesn't. Thank you for listening to the first part of my conversation with Angelique and Tracy. As is often the case, we just never have enough time. Sometimes we use the questions we prepared, sometimes we don't. But what I can assure you of is the conversation is rich and meaningful and joyful, and you will not want to miss part two. Part two of this conversation will be released on July 19th. I hope you have a chance to listen and please share it with all of your friends. This has been Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time.